Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So do you hear about this story that, that the New York Times is about to break? Uh, the alien invasion is beginning. No, no, no. I'm I'm serious. Oh, so Trump told Comey uh, whom to indict. Yeah, kidding. Yeah, you know what? Nothing shocks <laughs> us anymore. Did you notice what it? This wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Like really? And did he say indict me? Because that sounded entirely. Right. <laughs> no, no, like, like I hey. did it. I'm the one. Indict me. I, I shut as like the a clear. made up as a made up shocking news story. Like that doesn't come out. So I have to be like, did you hear? Like Trump has minotaurs chained in the basement <laughs> that he is gonna sick on people. Like I, yeah. I don't know. At this that's, point, nothing would shock like, me. That's yeah. We are beyond shock. That's what this is. This is like the eighth phase of like whatever of dealing with trauma. It's yeah, we need shot. to like rewrite the cycles of grief for yeah. the stages of grief. That's where this is the new one. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Chatterbox in Chief edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal here in the Jungle Studio where the air conditioning in this building has ceased apparently, but it's nice and cool in here. It's kind of barely barely working it's gonna get it's gonna it's getting hot in here it's getting hot in washington Steamy. <laughs> 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 the temperature is keeping pace with the rising tension I got it has overtaken the, the city all the increased blood pressure yeah. of all the people in the city has right. just raised the ambient temperature <laughs> the I, process I, I got, of becoming the dog in that fire cartoon is just like <laughs> accelerating. i did not think that this week i would say looking back on last week you ain't seen nothing uh, yet so i got into an uber this morning and the uh, very foreign driver said in some indiscernible accent, it, it's going to be very hot today. And I said, yeah, in so many ways. Yeah. <laughs> and and he said, did you understand me? I meant the weather. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I know. All right. Well, I am here in the jungle studio, as I said, with my friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Yeah. Hey, Another yeah. slow news week to get to. Yeah, nothing going on. on this, uh, this language is really, podcast. It's really the episode you can miss because yeah, skip ahead in your feed. <laughs> you know, Even I am drinking this week. That's are, where we are. That's now. where we are yeah, right now. You know, Tammy this week did not have scotch, but she did have bourbon. There you go. Susan's still abstaining, though. I have to go on national television in. An hour. Oh, and yeah. what is this? <laughs> well, I, I, and I'm leaving here and meeting with a bunch of members of Congress, so I figure I should get good and <laughs> drunk first. All right. This week on the podcast, President Trump lets the Russians in on a little secret. Jim Comey has been taking notes of his meetings with the president. And what do this week's extraordinary events tell us about where we are on this ever-unfolding national drama? And are we any closer to an end? (laughs) Um, Let's start with, uh, I I can't even say the big news of the week, because where do you begin? Let's start with uh, the Washington Post's report this week um, that last week, the day after President Trump dismissed Jim Comey as the FBI director, he was meeting with Sergei Lavrov and Sergei Kislyak. The Russian foreign minister and ambassador the in the Oval Office. Sergei the inevitable Sergei Kislyak. The inevitable Sergei Kislyak? Yes. Sergei the Hutt. 
<laughs> the most effective intelligence agent in <laughs> modern history. Had. And he's not even trying that hard. Um, uh, there's an Oval Office meeting. The subject turns to the threat against uh, commercial airliners and ISIS trying to slip explosives onto them, which is not any big secret. But uh, President Trump starts wading into information that some people in the room realize is coming from this very privileged source that we're getting from another country, which eventually gets disclosed to be Israel. Um, some notes of the meeting are written up. People in the White House are told about this, and eventually it's it's gets out that the president was essentially uh, piercing the veil, if you will, around the secrecy of this information, which was shared with us by Israel, uh, and was uh, certainly a breach of protocol, and now raises all kinds of questions about whether it damaged the source, did it damage the intelligence relationship. Um, let's just start with the first order question, right? How bad is this? Um, you know, Ben, you all at Lawfare wrote quite a bit extensively on how bad you think it is. Um, that was a few days ago. I don't know if, if time has tempered your opinion, but give us a sense of just, you know, how significant it is that the president did this. Well, so those are actually two separate questions. And what I, I would defer to Susan on a damage assessment, because I think her the in her experience on the sort of what what tea leaves you can read about how damaging this is is certainly more significant than mine. It's super fucking bad, Ben. Oh. Thanks for asking. Okay. <laughs> um, SFB. That's a that's, technical that's term, the right? official term for it. But the second question you asked, which is like, how bad is it that the president did this, is not actually a technical intelligence judgment. It's a, you know... Analysis of presidential sanity judgment and presidential action judgment. because he has the authority to declassify whatever he wants. Right? No, no. But it, but I, but I mean, I, even if it's only as a technical matter x bad rather than a hundred x bad, there's a separate question of how bad it is that the president would accidentally, you know, dish to Russian uh, operatives and diplomats, uh, whatever they are, uh, about you know, highly sensitive intelligence. And the answer to that is that it's an immense breach of faith with uh, the men and women of the American intelligence community. And it's also an immense breach of faith with our foreign intelligence partners, uh, both the individual partner that uh, was at issue here, which appears to be the Israelis, but also all the other partners who rely on the discretion of the American intelligence community as the sort of coordinator of a much larger intelligence effort. And all of that relies on the fact that our intelligence community is trustworthy, which in turn relies in a systematic way on the idea that the president is trustworthy. And 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 even if you say this is a four or five on a scale of bad as a technical matter, it's still a 10 on the scale of uh, of bad presidential conduct. Well, yeah. I think there's also, before we get to the technical question, which I think is is highly relevant as well, there is a judgment question, even if you take the president at his word in his tweets the following morning about why he said he did this, because of, of course, after the fact, after the story broke, he claimed that he had done it to purpose in order to enlist the Russians in greater cooperation in fighting ISIS. Um, but even if you take that at face value and accept that it's true, there's still a judgment question about this. Does it make sense to share it with the Russians before you share it with your European partners who are also subjects to, of this threat? 
Um, does it make sense to share it with the Russians without consulting the partner who gave you the intelligence or other partners who were affected by the threat? So even in the best case scenario, it is still a breach of faith with those allies. And it's still something that raises serious questions about the president's judgment. Now, when you put it in the context of the Washington Post reporting, which is that he gave them this information, not in the course of making some kind of argument to them, but in a boastful way, hey, I get such great intel. Let me tell you about this example. Um, hey, babes, want to see my intel? Yeah, right. So it suggests that there, there's no policy directive there at all um, behind this, that it's really just a question of uh, impulse. And, you know, that goes to the character issue. Um, it's not a, a policy judgment. It's not a strategic judgment. It's not a question of sequencing. It's a character flaw that this guy simply cannot keep it zipped. And so whether it's an intel secret or anything else, you have to worry about impulsivity. Yeah, so I, I do think it's going to be, um, there are these two questions, right, of um, how bad is it uh, in terms of the the damage assessment, and then uh, what does it say in terms of sort of a larger judgment? Um not all classified information is the same. Not all top uh, secret information is the same. And so immediately after the story, um, I was sort of expecting uh, the counter story to be, well, it wasn't really that critical of intelligence or he mentioned something, but it was this was overblown by the sources that actually wasn't that sensitive. Um, actually, everything that has come out since then has been an indicator that this is actually intelligence um, that is far more significant than was uh, even represented in that original Washington Post story. Okay, so so walk us through that, Susan. What's the uh, what are the indicia of particular sensitivity here? Right. So um, first of all, we have the initial reaction uh, of Trump's staff. So this is what sort of puts the lie to H.R. McMaster's representation of everything was totally appropriate. You know, he talked about only things that were okay. Um, the account is that the staff immediately and rapidly recognized that this was a serious problem called the uh, called the NSA called the CIA started putting uh, sort of damage control in motion um, the notion that it is uh, uh, the reports that it is uh, Israeli intelligence uh, also makes it a particularly uh, damaging and consequential breach, considering the importance of that intelligence sharing relationship. And why is that relationship? I mean, Israel is a close ally, but we have a lot of close allies. Why is that re intelligence relationship of particular significance? Because different countries, no country has insight into everything everywhere, and, and different countries have um, uh, different degrees of uh, sort of regional penetration or or, um, or capacity. And so um, whenever you think about uh, partners like the Israelis and, and the, uh, the intelligence information they might be able to produce that other countries are, aren't able to, or, or certainly no other countries that our uh, intelligence sharing allies are able to, um, uh, paired with their willingness to not share intelligence, right? So um, uh, if this was a country where it, it really was a, a highly asymmetrical relationship in which, you know, yeah, the U.S. depends on them for a little bit, but they depend on the United States for a whole lot more. So their ability to sort of retaliate somehow is limited. No, I mean, we, we depend on the Israelis quite a bit. It doesn't mean they don't need us for anything, but it, this is a, a more complex uh, situation. Um, plus, there's now news reports out of the Israeli 
Daily Press that uh, people are are furious that this is uh, this has compromised really really significant uh, significant sources. Um, the other thing that is sort of the clearest indication that this was really valuable intelligence is this was a source that produced actionable intelligence about a threat to aviation, so actionable that the United States actually stopped allowing laptops on certain flights into the country. So sort of putting all these things together, um, paired with uh, comments from U.S. officials, including current U.S. officials, it just, it is to me painting a picture that that the information that, that was disclosed as just a practical matter could have very significant consequences. Can I ask a question about one dimension of the reporting around this issue that I found really interesting? So, you know, the president... Uh, let slip this information. And it was troubling enough that it, you know, the fact that this happened got leaked to the press and the press immediately started digging into what happened and what the information was and where it came from and so on. In the course of all of that reporting, which is the media doing its job, many more details about the nature of this information and its source and what the implications of blowing it mean um, have been publicly reported. And so obviously, this was all kicked off by a presidential indiscretion. Um, but the result is a huge amount of public disclosure of information that it, it would seem to me, I think, would compound the damage uh, of of this intelligence leak. Am I getting that right? Well, that's what, that's what they call in the intelligence business the mosaic, right? You release one tile of the mosaic and... Uh, then, you know, there are these other pieces that make up a picture and you get uh, a, you know, you, you that's why they don't like to release individual components because it leads to the disclosure of additional but the, components. I mean, but, well, I would actually, I've been thinking a lot about this in part because we've been reporting on it, obviously. So I've been a, a and part And you've of, had to make judgments about what to report and what yeah, to Yeah, I mean, like, for instance, we knew that it was Israel uh, the night that the story in the Post broke. We, we confirmed that with our sources, and we made a judgment call not to report it after, you know, the administration <clears throat> and the, you know, intelligence officials asked us not to report that. And we were, we were transparent about that in the, in the paper uh, and ultimately did report it after the Times reported it because it was sort of out in the world, and what are you going to do about that? But what I found interesting is is in talking to to people in the government, that very point keeps coming up, which is so it's almost like not to say that they're blaming the press for putting this out there. It's more of a question of, well, you know, it shouldn't it came up in the Oval Office. It became an issue. It somehow leaked out as more and more people found out about this. Uh, but the but what the, the the administration line has been is trying to combat this by saying the media is overblowing it, right? That it wasn't actually that significant of an event. Um, of course, if that's the case, then why were we getting pushback on don't report details about it? You might jeopardize ongoing operations, etc. You can't really square those things. But one official I've talked to <clears throat> at pretty great length about this had a very interesting point, which was that actually he felt that if you really wanted to see where the most um, not so much incriminating, but revealing information has come out around this issue. It's actually been in the news reporting of a couple of weeks ago, particularly in CNN, about the intelligence threats against airliners and the steps that the government was taking, which strongly suggests that there was already information leaking out from this source via other means, not necessarily the president, uh, before any of us knew that he talked about it with the Russians. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think that speaks to a general carelessness with classified information. Um, uh, if we go back to think about how that initial reporting came out um, uh, in terms of the laptop question, there was uh, this decision without any sort of context or information, not even the color coded like, you know, orange, red, whatever of the Bush years, just laptops are banned, no explanation, terrible public communication, tons of criticism into the White House of and, and DHS of this is not how you do things. Um, then all of a sudden we have press reports popping up about, you know, there's this bomb threat against ISIS. Now, this is speculative, but I think it's plausible that the leaks were White House leaks as damage control of some sort. Those are, uh, it would be very unusual for the intelligence community and considering their reaction here to be the source of that kind of information. And so, look, I think there are lots and lots of indicia here of a White House that just is not careful with this stuff and and has been not careful with it in lots of different ways from from the Mar-a-Lago dining room to you know to to their interactions with the press to the people they hire and that this is now they finally have crossed a line um where that's all sort of come to a head well along those lines you also had the very interesting uh, uh case of white house officials coming out and defending the president's actions by saying, don't worry, he's not briefed enough in depth on things that he probably couldn't have revealed anything that important anyway, which was this super awkward moment. So reassuring. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me, let me, Tam, let me ask you, because you know, the Trump, Trump is getting ready to go on this, uh, his first, first foreign trip, and it's a huge one. He's going to Saudi Arabia, Israel, and to uh, Vatican City. Uh, the first stop is Riyadh, then he's on to Israel. So what's what's that like? As you know, here we are with uh, it now out in the open that we've got this great source of information. Uh, there's some level of consternation in Israel over this. Um, uh, not that Trump has had any kind of the fraught relationship with Netanyahu that Obama did, but what does the scene look like as he gets ready to touch down there? Okay, so first of all, this is a nine-day trip. He's going to Riyadh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, the Vatican. Then he's going to Brussels for a NATO summit. Then he's going to Italy for a G7 meeting. Um, so he's basically hitting a lot of major alliance relationships in one long trip, and and several of them in multilateral groupings. And so when he lands in Riyadh, he's meeting, of course, with the Saudis and the Emiratis and Jordanians and other major partners. But the Saudis have invited 50-something, I think 56 uh, Muslim-majority nations to come to this summit on combating violent extremism. Uh, and uh, many of these countries you know, have very different kinds of relationships with the United States, certainly not necessarily the same track record of trust. And uh, and I think Trump was hoping with this trip to get more commitments out of his partners in the region uh, for their help in the fight against ISIS. And I think that this intelligence leak is going to cast a pall over that. Um, with the Israelis, of course, you have anger over the leak. You also have a lot of anxiety about other dimensions of tr Trump's policy with regard to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whether Trump recognizes Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem. The administration's just announced, uh, according to Bloomberg, that they are not, in fact, going to move the embassy to Jerusalem in June when the latest waiver expires. Uh, so I think in some ways... It's those policy things that will um, that will overshadow this intelligence leak in public on his Israel stop. But behind the scenes, I have no doubt 
it's going to constrain the way the Israelis engage. And then when you think about the NATO summit, you know, these are our our Five Eyes partners, other major partners. I can imagine them, them all sitting around the table and nobody wants to say anything. Well, that's what I was wondering. Is there a moment where, you know, privately they look at Trump and they go, dude, come on, what are you doing? Or is it just nobody addresses the issue and it's just incredibly tense? Yeah, well, I, I think the latter. And I also think that there may be information they have that they're going to be disinclined to share, knowing that it may go straight to Moscow. And, and Tehran. Yeah. Right. Well, and remember, this, this confirms, that, yeah. you know, those early reports out of Israeli press about Israeli officials being worried about this precise thing. Right. Right. All right. Let's move on to the other <clears throat> OMG of the week. Uh, <laughs> so the New York Times uh, reported on Tuesday. Right? Tuesday? What day is this? Yeah. I'd just like to say we don't know it's the only other <laughs> OMG of the week because it's only Wednesday. Because it's only and, Wednesday. And I, and I actually want to say that uh, by the time this airs, there may have already been another one. Yeah. And and if there isn't another one by the time you hear this, there will be another one soon. Yeah. OBE, as we say in the trade, <laughs> overtaken by events. Um so it turns out that in all of these times when Jim Comey met with President Trump before he fired him, uh, Jim Comey went back to the office and wrote detailed memos about what he and the president discussed. Which, if you know Comey, is completely unsurprising. Right. It's kind of his thing. Right. Well, but it's also yeah. exactly the kind of thing to that you do if, for <clears throat> example, you have a boss who makes suggestive comments. Your lawyer for your sexual harassment suit will tell you to document that Everything. with memo memos in real time. Right. Or if you have an employee that you suspect is stealing from the company till, and actually, your HR department will tell you to keep memos in real time. And, and if you actually, think you have a boss who's obstructing justice, right. you might write a memo. So, so no, no, this is actually, if you are listening to Rational Security and your boss, who is a law enforcement officer of any kind, but particularly maybe a chief law enforcement <laughs> officer of any kind, the, asks the, yeah. let alone the chief law enforcement, if your boss asks you to drop an investigation uh, of a friend of his, and that investigation may involve the boss, write a memo. Uh, actually, write down exactly what happened and make sure several people of your close acquaintance uh, have access to it in case anything happens to you. That's just good thinking. That's not, you know, bureaucratic machinations. It's actually not, there's nothing inappropriate about it. That's not even a pro tip. That's right. just, you should do that. Th that's an amateur tip. Just <laughs> write a memo well, so let's talk but about this, this memo. Gets to this very well, just, just we're just we're clear. Hold on, just we're clear. We're talking about the memo Jim Comey wrote after President Trump asked him to back off Mike. One of them. In case you've been under several rocks this week, go ahead, Susan. I guess you've drunk yourself blind. And if you have, you have gouged out your ears. <laughs> but the, I think there's sort of this. I mean, we're we're laughing about it, but it does. You know, the White House is sort of pushing back, or or Trump surrogates are sort of pushing back, as though oh, you know Jim Comey was being vindictive or petty. I think Jason Miller said how weird and vindictive for him to keep a little diary 
actually think about the position like, that Comey all people was in government in. take notes. Yeah. So first of all, the memorandum for the record is not a diary, but instead an obligation of the job. The second is, you know, think about the position that that Comey's in, um, and uh, and I think it colors the way we should understand Trump's conduct, um, which is that you have these really strange interactions, interactions that are so contrary to sort of basic norms of the way your job is supposed to interact with another person's job whenever you're discharging really important offices that it's hard to even say this is the obstruction of justice, right? The, I, I hope you can find your way to see yourself, see, you know, clearing Flynn or however he phrased it. I think it's it's pretty, it almost offers some insight into Comey's thinking, which is, you know, you start to document a course of conduct. And I think whenever we start to think about whether or not this was obstruction, it's not going to be holding up a single thing of this, you know, you you fired this person and you did this or you did that. It's it's going to be this cumulative thing um, of, a, of a course of conduct over three or four months that that is going to be the basis of making that kind of judgment ultimately. I think that's exactly right. And I think... Uh... Uh, an additional element is that if you're Jim Comey in that situation, and remember that that incident on the public record has not did not occur in a vacuum. Uh, we know that uh, the month before that incident, uh, he had been asked to pledge loyalty to this man, and that he refused. We know that Reince Priebus had contacted uh, his deputy on an active investigative matter. Uh, we know that there were some additional phone calls. Um, and uh, we also know that at the end of the day, Trump fired him. And so I think that you can say just on the public record, there is a, a highly suggestive pattern of activity. Uh, and I think we can assume that that is not an exhaustive list of the incidents that may have caused a reasonable FBI director under the circumstances to document his interactions with the oh, president. I mean, in fact, it, we, it's been – we reported in the Times report. There are other memos. Yes. I mean, he did this on multiple right. occasions. No, and, and, and it is – you know, remember that in the whole hospital room scene – story in the uh, uh, in the 2004 era, uh, Comey documented things then as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is a, uh, a practice of his that is, by the way, you know, good hygiene. Um, and, uh, and if you happen to think that you're dealing with highly dishonorable people, and uh, this is a group of highly dishonorable people, documenting everything you do and everything that's said is just good sense. The other thing is, look, let's let's take ourselves back to what feels like a million years ago, but was actually last week when we recorded uh, an episode after Comey had been fired. We were discussing uh, whether or not this was a pretextual, you know, the Rosenstein memo was just pretext and it really was. And well, if it was the Russian investigation, but can you prove that? In the period since that time, he has, President Trump has gone on television and said, 
Yeah, no, I was going to fire him no matter what, even if uh, it had nothing to do with the Rosenstein memo. And two, I had the Russia investigation in mind when I took that particular action. He has obliterated the pretext and admitted... Along, along with Rod Rosenstein's credibility. Exactly. like, And that I think it speaks to how sort of mind-boggling and, and disorienting this all is and that... We've already, you know, originally we thought sort of the issue was going to be how do you establish the real reason versus the pretextual reason. Now he's just given us the real reason. Well, maybe this is evidence that he's learned the lesson of uh, Nixon and Watergate, where it's not the crime, it's the cover up. So, all right, let's just throw the cover let's up to the with side. The I'm going to be completely brazen about what I've done, and I dare you to make an issue out right. of it. So, so, so actually, I, I actually think there's an element you are joking, but I actually think there's an element of truth to that, yeah. which is that there's a whole bunch of things, you know, that if you do covertly are a cover up and if you do overtly are, you know, uh, people don't notice like well, especially... collusion with the Russians, you know, <laughs> uh, for example, look, if you, uh, you know, make a secret deal to like, I'm going to, you know, you're going to hack the election and I'm going to, you know, do X, Y, and Z for you and praise Vladimir Putin. And then, you know, people say, well, you're colluding with the Russians and that's a conspiracy and there's something off. But if you just do it completely in the, in the public realm, the Russians hack the election and you praise Vladimir Putin, deny that they're doing it, uh, say it could be a 400 pound guy on a bed. Why is he obsessed with the weight of the hacker? Um, and um, and then invite them into the office. And then invite them into office and give them highly classified information. Then uh, people don't seem to mind nearly as much. Or at least they don't know how to think about it. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is an interesting, it's an interesting question. And of course, it's also that, you know, people have become inured to outrageous behavior from this particular figure. And so the bar gets higher every time for that behavior to trigger a shock, a response of shock. Well, this is exactly, I, I think this gets to sort of what we were going to talk about in the third right. segment. Right, it which does. Is Let's segue to that. <laughs> what this really is is about... Yeah. Um, Congress's tolerance Wait, level. The- okay, but before we get to Congress's tolerance level, before we shift to that third segment, I just want to tie the first and second segments together for a minute because, yes, there's a distinction between them and it's important to keep them separate, but it's also important to say that on successive days, the President of the United States fired the FBI director for reasons he later said were because he was annoyed about the Russia investigation and then went into the Oval Office and dished highly classified information that betrayed a U.S. ally and an allied foreign intelligence service to Sergei Kislyak. And I, you know, those are uncontested facts. And I, and I do think it is worth just pausing a moment over the unified field theory of segment one and segment two. But the unified field theory is he he breached his oath of office in one in one way. He breached his oath of office in a uh, in a manner that didn't didn't have underlying uh, potential criminal violations. And in the other context, he breached his, his oath of office in a way that uh, did have underlying criminal uh, or may uh, or may. or might but, have but uh, e- underlying. But, but even if there aren't. I mean, I do, even if there aren't 
criminal components of that. I do think the breach of the oath of office on the facts as we understand them is breathtaking. And I think it's worth the reason we're all having trouble sleeping at night, at least I am, the reason the day drinking in Washington has gone through the roof, the reason uh, people are walking around greeting each other with words like, what the fuck? Um, And how are you holding up? Uh, and the reason people like Shane have uh, like not not shaved today uh, is I like it actually. Is, I'm just a slob. Is that there's a <laughs> little shadow? You know, there is a, a breathtaking breach of 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 the president's oath of office that is staring us in the face, and that or a series of breaches that ties together the set of things we were discussing in set in segment one and segment two. But so can I just take a step back even from that? Although I will pause to say that I love Shane's rough and ready oh, look. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, Tam. I think staying up all night is great for it you. It really man. suits you, Shane. I, yeah. It is also a public service and we appreciate it. It's but... great for my health. <laughs> <laughs> Joe loves it too. <laughs> but really what, what these behaviors have in common is the man who, who exhibited them, Donald Trump. And, what the last week has revealed um, to such an extent that even congressional Republicans are now having trouble looking away from it is that this is who Donald Trump is. He is careless about the responsibilities of his office. He's careless about international relationships. He's fixated on his own uh rights as he put them in his tweet uh, about the intelligence sharing with Russia. He's fixated on his own power and his own prestige. Um, You know, the reporting that aides put his name into paragraphs of papers that are going to him so that he'll keep reading. This is who he is. People who have been saying he'll settle down, he'll learn on the job, uh, can no longer look away from this. People who have been saying uh, this is all an act to win the election and he's actually a really smart guy cannot look away from this. And I think that what's really happened this week is that it's just pulled back the curtain from a whole lot of people who have been desperately trying to maintain a sense of normalcy and a degree of denial about the nature of the man who's president of the United States. Now, does that motivate them to act that's the question I think that's before us. Which brings us to Congress. Right. Well, I, I think this actually it ties into um, uh, sort of to bring both of the first two and the third together, right, to tie them in like a, a nice bow for our listeners because we care about you. Um, this notion of uh, the, the secrecy, and I, I think we're so conditioned for the idea that a story breaks, it's shocking, it's the front page news, and then something happens. And when nothing happens, and in this case, the nothing happening is Congress not doing anything, not taking action, all of a sudden it becomes normal, right? Your your ability to go back and say that's unacceptable whenever you've tolerated it for a period of time, it, you undercut yourself. You undercut yourself in precisely the same way that Donald Trump undercut himself by saying five months after Jim Comey had been his FBI director, I'm mad about something he did eight months ago, right? That whenever something has not been a problem or, or you haven't thought it, it warranted this really significant response, 
it makes it much harder for you to undertake the response. Think about all the momentum going against impeachment uh, uh, for a Republican-controlled Congress. If they don't start taking action rapidly in response to this stuff, I start to wonder uh, what possible information could come out that would cause them to do something. Well, that's what I really want to get you guys' thoughts on quickly before we wrap up. But, I mean— we have seen a, a, a series of events that extraordinary doesn't even capture what has happened here. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this sequence of events, certainly in modern political history. There is a kind of a sustained quality of chaos right now to both our politics, to the administration. Is there a breaking point in this, or is it simply that this is now just kind of you know the new normal is the wrong phrase, but is this it's the new yeah. abnormal? Well, it's a new, but it's it's an environment in which clearly Donald Trump, to a certain extent, thrives and survives. I mean, he is surviving this, which I think is probably the most notable thing to happen. Where these are, I think, uh, you know. It seems to me like these are things that are, you know, actions that uh, would probably undo most people. So, I mean, do you think this is just something that we're going to tolerate? Is there a breaking point so, in this? So, first of all, I think it's wrong to say that he's surviving this. I, You know, it may turn out that he's surviving this, but we'll only know that when we know that he either has or hasn't. Right. And I think, you know, we're we don't know what inning of the game we're in. Right. And right. Uh, and I think it's reasonable. Look, if we're in the second inning and I'm sorry, they, it could get worse from this. <laughs> no. I mean, that's what this conversation Take is. It could in. get a no. lot worse. It's than not this. necessarily so that that those extra innings mean that more horrible news is going to break. Though. So look, it the point is you could imagine it being a long, drawn out death from cancer. Right. You could also imagine it being a. Uh, a short, acute illness that looks like it might turn into a long, drawn-out death of cancer, but that the system eventually, the immune system kicks in and kicks in hard when it kicks in. And I think until you know what the etiology of the disease is, uh, it, it is wrong to say he's surviving this. I think the key question is, uh, and I'm not a political scientist, let alone an Americanist political scientist, which is a species that I'm not terribly sympathetic to, uh, but is what does the median Republican member of Congress, how do they assess their threat matrix uh, politically? And is that, uh, and at what point, if any, do they uh, either as a matter of patriotism or as a matter of fear of their voters, fear a general election voter more than a primary. Well, it seems like they're voter. they're looking for the third option, which is that there's still a way to salvage this, fire your staff, get it under control, you know, take yeah. control. These are corkers saying this. I mean, they still feel like there's an opportunity to get back to what Republicans in Congress would say is a normal administration, right. which I personally think he's is totally misguided. Gonna but, yeah. He's totally going to change this time. He's not going to change. But, so yeah. the question is, like, how, what are their priorities? I there have been, There's been some good um, news reporting on this, I think, over the last few days that have advanced kind of alternative hypotheses of what it is members of Congress are prioritizing and what it might take for them to start to flip in the way that you're describing, Ben. You know, for some of them, it's about the legislative agenda. Um, for some of them, it is about valuing the base over the general election voter. And therefore, you know, they want to get through 2018 
before they make a call on whether this guy is good or bad for their future. And if that's the case, then, you know, we are talking about a, a long period of continued chaos in in policymaking, chaos in the process of the White House and the executive branch, um, chaos in our relation in America's relationships abroad. And that's not something that a staff change is going to manage. And it's not something that um, can be learned out of. And as you said, Shane, it's an environment in which President Trump seems to thrive and even enjoy himself. So I, I, th I think if we're going on the assumption that it's the electoral calculation that matters and that congressional Republicans are more worried about their base than they are about the center, um, then I, I think we all need to buckle in and and be ready to just live through this until the midterms. I just have one thing to add to that, which is, you know, if Mitch McConnell, who said he wants to see a little bit less drama, uh, thinks that you can reduce the drama level with a staff change. Uh, he's kidding himself. The problem is not the staff. The problem is not ranked Priebus. The problem is not even Steve Bannon. The problem is Donald Trump. And we. the problem is that we have a mercurial, not very intelligent, uh, uh, vindictive uh, president with a severe impulse control problem. And that is a completely toxic uh, and, and, and who entirely lacks a moral compass. And you put those things together and that is not a remediable problem with staff changes. It's not a remediable problem with, uh, you know, organized process. It's, it's an it's a endemic character flaw in the person who embodies the executive branch of the United States. And you just have to decide how you feel about that. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. On that cheerful note. Do <clears throat> um, you want to go first? Should I will go. I have a okay. very quick one. Um, uh, it is a bottle of Three Howls Navy Strength Gin Ooh, yeah. uh, from Lawfare uh, editor and uh, uh, rational security listener Nick Weaver, um, who heard our pleas for <laughs> more booze uh, of a more uh, uh, varied nature. Um, and so we support diversity. We support booze. diversity in our booze. And, uh, and Nick has very kindly sent us this bottle, which we will now proceed to drink all of <laughs> in the next hour. I just want to add that uh, a complete stranger to me sent me a bottle of Talisker, which Shane and I are... Uh, oh, that was also from a stranger? That was... Well, well Nick Weaver is by no means a no. stranger. But, so but, no, but before but, a stranger but, sent you a bottle of scotch, too. Well, no, no. Before, a, a, a friend sent us a bottle oh. of the cask strength. Right. Uh, um, Avalor uh, was, was, was from uh, a listener of the podcast whom I know very well and have actually written things with. But this was the first bottle that has shown up unsolicited... Uh, but from somebody who listens to the podcast and none of us has ever met. And so I just want to say, Steve, this is a huge shout out to you because you have set a trail that other rational security listeners should, should Way follow. Way better than a sponsorship. Inundate us with booze. Yeah, yeah, to hell with me undies. Um, you know, send booze to Rational Security. Did you check this bottle for listening devices? Uh, I, I checked it. Do you um, know Steve? You just drank some of it. No, I've never met Steve. Are you sure his name is not Sergey? Uh, <laughs> Steve Gay? Steve? Steve? I don't know. Steve Kislyak? Steve, don't stop sending booze on my account. <laughs> 
Um, I'll do my object now. Um, I am under attack in my garden. What? By birds. These little bastards. I saw them this morning. They were like this. They were. I don't even what they were. Finches, sparrows. I don't care. Starlings. Starlings. Probably. Savaging my mint plant. And you guys know how I feel about the Your garden. Mint plant. I have a. I have a mint plant. The mint plant will grow back. But I have like you know. Rational security listeners know. I'm into the garden. It brings me peace. At one point, we talked about like growing poisons in it because of a security theme. And instead, you planted radishes. Well, I planted radishes, which you saw last week, which I'm you know saving up for when we all have to live underground. <clears throat> but now I have got like a veritable vegetable garden. On the on the deck, you know, it's beautiful. It's all in containers. I've got, you know, everything you could possibly want. And these little bastards are out there picking leaves off my shishito peppers, going after the eggplants, going after the mint. So I have implemented my own homeland security system. It is this. <laughs> oh, the fake owl. The fake owl. Ah. The fake owl is my sentinel. Shane. I don't know why he couldn't keep him away from the mint plants. We might need more. Now, here's I'm, a I'm sorry to tell you this, but the fake owl's efficacy decreases over time. They become inured to it, and they're going right? to start They learn your, your source again. and method, and it no longer is. Maybe we yeah, need that's right. Do, so, should we put one in the Oval Office? <laughs> just sort of like I'm just waiting to go out there and find him like sitting there like eating a tomato while sitting on the owl. That will happen. And I, I think if you're really serious about keeping the food from your garden pristine, you're going to have to do bird netting. All right. We'll see. Joe's going to be very disappointed because the owl is his idea. <laughs> My pre- Joe's in charge of Homeland Perimeter Defense. <laughs> I, I, I have a different prescription for this problem. A BB gun. Oh. Or airsoft. Air a sniper. Yeah. We put we put mirrors up to like shoo them away with lights, but national security listeners, tell me how to defeat these birds. Tomorrow thinks netting. I'm into denial. Oh, okay. Well, luckily we have a lot of booze I can keep drinking when I lose my mint. You could just put it in a bird feeder. Lose your, <laughs> lose your mint, lose your mind. That's right. All right, that brings us to the end of the podcast this week. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to the show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Find us on Facebook. What? I just want to say <laughs> I, st- I I went on to the iTunes uh, store uh-huh. uh, uh, page for Rational Security. Yeah. You guys have been leaving the most awesome reviews. Oh, good. Okay. There are, and I'm actually going to print out a bunch of them and read them next week because uh, some of them are seriously funny. And uh, so- We have a witty listenership. We do have a witty listenership, but we also, we just got, there's some great stuff on there. And so, you know, leave your rating this week. Write your review of Rational Security. Next week, we're going to have a little bit of a uh, of a break from all that ails us, and we're going to read some reviews right. of Rational Security. And I will spare you from our normal plea and say thank you for leaving five-star ratings and reviews. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. But not this week. But not this week. She's away. Your audio engineer this week has been Ben Wittes, so blame him. The show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by Jim Comey and the Dirty Diary. Not bad, not bad. He's got a dirty diary. He's got a A petty diary, a a vengeful diary. Of course, (laughs) our music is performed as always by Sophia Yan, who, if she does keep a diary, is full of nothing but praise for this show and all the wonderful people in her charmed life. That sounds bad. And who has probably never obstructed justice. Totally. (laughs) But only administered. And if she did, would not write about it in her diary. On behalf of my good friend Susan Hennessy, tomorrow Kaufman Wittis and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Hey. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 